Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. We're starting a new series here this morning um, on the life of Jacob. Um, we actually began a series in Genesis back in August 2020, right in the middle of COVID. And we worked our way kind of slowly all the way through chapter 25, decided after 25 chapters of Genesis that maybe it's a time for a little break. And so that's when we moved into a study of the book of Mark. And that uh, was finished here recently. And so we're going back to Genesis, going back to where we left off in chapter 25. You might remember we looked at the life of Abraham. And so we went up to Abraham's death in chapter 25, and we're going to pick up there. Now, as we get back here into Genesis, one thing you're going to notice, particularly as we get into these middle chapters of Genesis, that some of the stories we're going to look at are kind of, kind of strange, seem a little obscure, maybe a little harder to understand, particularly than some of the stories we see in Mark, for instance. And uh, you might be asking yourself sometimes, why in the world are we studying these very obscure, strange stories? I want to remind you of just a couple of reasons why it's good for us to take some time to study the Old Testament. One reason is because of what Paul tells us here in Romans 15. He says, whatever was written in former days, referring to the Old Testament, was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. So Paul is telling us that the Old Testament, Genesis included, and the stories we're going to look at in the life of Jacob, are written so that you would be encouraged and so that you and I would have hope. I think we impoverish ourselves spiritually if we ignore the Old Testament, even though the stories might seem uh, a little strange. So, Old Testament is good for you and good for me. So that's one reason why it's good for us to do this. The other reason is because the Old Testament history is our history. It's your history. It's my history. It's the history of Israel, of course, yes, but we as Christians are the children of Abraham. Uh, we are the Israel of God, the New Testament tells us. And so the Old Testament is our history too. And so just as an American, you want to know about George Washington and the Constitution and the Civil War, that's our history as Americans. The Old Testament is our history as Christians. And so it's good for us to devote attention to it. So very quickly, let me give you some review before we read our text here in Genesis 25. This is going back a couple of years now, <clears throat> but, but you might recall when we looked at the life of Abraham, that whole story started when God came and made a promise to Abraham. He, he made this astounding promise. He said, Abraham, from you are going to come a multitude of descendants. I'm going to make you into this great nation, and you are going to be a nation that is going to bless all the families and all the nations of the earth. You, Abraham, from you, this is what will happen. Now, one of the reasons why that was such a peculiar promise is because Abraham happened to be a very old man. And he happened to be married to a woman named Sarah, who was barren, unable to have children. And so the whole question is raised, how in the world are descendants going to come from Abraham and Sarah if Abraham is old and Sarah is barren? And the answer is, it's by a miracle of God's grace. And this is what we see all throughout the scriptures. Every good thing that happens is a miracle of God's grace. Sarah has a child 
and we see the redemptive promises are beginning to take shape. But let me show you this little diagram here to kind of give you a picture of <clears throat> the Abrahamic promises and the whole flow of the Old Testament. You see Abraham here, the promise was made to Abraham, from him would come these descendants, from which would come a great nation. Remember, Abraham and Sarah lost faith, and they decided to do this thing over here with Hagar, from which we get Ishmael. Uh, but Ishmael was not the child of promise, and so Abraham and Sarah continued to wait, and eventually Isaac is born. And so when we were looking at the life of Abraham, we saw something of the life of Isaac as well. And today we're catching up here with the life of Isaac, and we find that Isaac has a wife named Rebekah, and now we're expecting these promises that God made to Abraham to continue through Isaac, but here's the problem. Rebekah is barren too. Rebekah can't have children, and so again, the question is raised, how is God going to fulfill His promises when Rebekah and Isaac can't do it on their own, and Abraham and Sarah couldn't do it on their own? And the answer, as always, is it's, it's grace. It's always grace. It's always God doing for us what we can't do for ourselves. And so we see here Isaac and Rebekah. <clears throat> Isaac and Rebekah uh, eventually give birth to Jacob, who later is named Israel. And that's what we're beginning this series to explore, the life of Jacob. And today we're beginning with the birth of Jacob, the birth of Jacob. So, if you're able to stand, uh, let's do that now, and let me read these passages to us here, uh, Genesis 25, verses 19 to 34, the birth of Jacob. <clears throat> it says, these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah to be his wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus... Why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red. All his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaiah was, excuse me, Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. 
Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Holy Spirit, would you please open our eyes and hearts to behold wonderful things in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Okay, see what I mean? Some of these Old Testament stories, a little strange, a little obscure. What in the world are we going to make of this? Sometimes when you read the Bible, it can be kind of frustrating, right? Because you read certain passages and you think, I don't know what this means. pastor keeps telling me I'm supposed to be reading my Bible, but I can't make any sense of it. And so I want to help you uh, in part in this sermon. Here's one way I think that you can maybe make some sense of the Bible is that every time you read a passage of the Scripture, you can ask three questions. You can ask, what does this say about the ungodly? What does this say about the godly? And what does this say about God? Three questions you can ask of any passage of Scripture. What does it say about the godly, the ungodly, and about God? And that's what we're gonna, uh, how we're going to apply uh, how we're going to interpret this passage here this morning is applying those three questions to, to this text. See if we can make sense of this, okay? So the first thing is this. What does this text teach about the godly? So it begins in verse 19, right? These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah to be his wife. Now, when I say the godly here, I am referring to Isaac and Rebekah. I'm calling them the godly. Now, why am I doing that? Why am I referring to Isaac and Rebekah as the godly? Well, we need to go back to uh, our diagram. <clears throat> and the reason is because God's covenant promises, promises He made to Abraham, are flowing through this line of descendants. God's promises are going to go through Isaac. They are not going to go through Ishmael, even though Ishmael and Isaac were both born to Abraham. God has made a choice that Isaac is the one through whom eventually the world is going to be saved. So, for instance, um, Genesis 17 says this, God is speaking, He says, As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him. I'll make him fruitful, multiply him greatly, as you'll... Father, twelve princes, I'll make him into a great nation, but I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. This is God speaking to Abraham. Covenant is not going through Ishmael. It's going through Isaac. And so that's why I'm saying Isaac and Rebekah, they are the, the godly line of descendants as opposed to Ishmael. <clears throat> and so you can see the way all of redemptive history kind of flows out if you look at this diagram because um, as uh, Abraham and Sarah give birth to Isaac, Isaac and Rebekah then give birth to Jacob. And here's where we are. This is what we're studying in Genesis 25. We've got a brother of Jacob named Esau. And so we're going to be looking at the relationship between these two. But notice the redemptive line is going through Jacob and it's not going through Esau even though Esau was born to Isaac and Rebekah. So the redemptive line is very specific, and as we consider to uh, continue to study Jacob, we're going to see that to Jacob is born 12 children by these uh, different women, and these 12 children become the 12 tribes of Israel. 
And one of those tribes is called Judah, and from Judah comes David, and from David becomes, uh, comes Jesus, the son of David, the Messiah. And so this whole redemptive line, so when God announces to Abraham all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through you, what he eventually means is that it's all going to come to its fulfillment when Jesus comes on the scene hundreds and hundreds of years later. So that's just a broad overview of the, of the whole history of, of the Old Testament, basically. But what I'm trying to point out to you, or to make sure you understand, is that there's these two different redemptive lines of descendants, the godly and the ungodly. Now, <clears throat> this actually even goes back further before Abraham, goes all the way back to Genesis. Do you remember? We were there many years ago in Genesis 3, and after the fall, when Adam and Eve sinned against God, do you remember when God came to the serpent, he said this to the serpent, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Okay, so I just told you about these two redemptive lines, godly and ungodly. This goes all the way back to Genesis 3.15. There is going to be a line of descendants that come from the woman and a line of descendants that come from Satan. And it's just those two groups. And really, we could say all of humankind throughout all of history basically fall into two groups. Those who are descended from Eve and those who are descended from Satan. There are either people who are Christians or non-Christians, people who know God or don't know God. There, there's no in-between stage. All of human civilization broken down into these two basic categories. But notice what God says here about the relationship between these two redemptive lines. There's going to be enmity between them. There's going to be conflict. There's going to be tension. They're going to be opposed to each other. And th this is just a peek into what we're going to see as we look at the relationship between Jacob and Esau. These two are in constant conflict with each other. So much so, maybe you caught it in the text when I read it, that they were fighting when they were still in the womb. Before they even were born, they're fighting with each other. And that's just a fulfillment of what God was saying way back in Genesis 3.15. This godly and ungodly line are going to be at enmity. They're going to be opposed to each other. And that continues even to the present day, friends. We, we are still living in a world of perpetual spiritual conflict between light and darkness, the spirit and the flesh, between good and evil, between truth and falsehood, between the godly and and the ungodly. And as we look at our world and the way the world is changing and the way our culture is changing, I don't think anybody would disagree that we are in a conflict. We are in a perpetual spiritual battle as Christians. And it's just all a fulfillment of what was said all the way back here in Genesis 3, this enmity between these two lines. So we got a godly and an ungodly line, right? <clears throat> That's really kind of all background to just make the point that Isaac and Rebekah are part of the godly line because the redemptive promises are flowing through them. But the question that I'm asking about this text is, what does the text teach us about godly people? What, what, do, they, what do they look like? What do they do? And the answer, in this case, we could say a lot of things about what makes a godly person godly, but in this case, what we see is what this teaches us about godly people is that they pray. Godly people are people of prayer. So look how this shows up. Verse, uh, <clears throat> verse uh, 21. Verse 21. Um, Isaac 
prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. Isaac knows the redemptive promises are coming through him and that he and his wife have got to give children, have children if the promise to Abraham is going to be fulfilled, but his wife can't have children. So what does he do? He prays. He looks to God to do what he can't do for himself. And notice here, very interestingly, that in verse 20, it says that Isaac was 40 when he married Rebekah. Verse 20, he was 40 years old. If you skip down to verse 26, notice that when Jacob is born, Isaac is 60. So the implication is that he didn't just pray a couple times, that he was praying for 20 years. 20 years for his wife to have a child, and God heard, and God blessed, and Rebekah conceived. So that, that's one example of prayer. These godly people pray. But there's another example of prayer because we notice that Rebekah prays also. Verse 22, the children are struggling together within her. Now, remember, Rebekah doesn't know at this time that she has twins. You know, she didn't get the ultrasound. So she doesn't know that she has twins. All she knows is that there's a lot of fighting going on down here. <laughs> and it's got her really concerned. I mean, maybe she's thinking she's having a miscarriage or something. She, she's alarmed by this. And so that's why it says in verse 22 that she says, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. She prayed. She called out to God and said, God, why? Why is this happening to me? And so, you know, friends, prayer is not just about requesting things that you want. Sometimes prayer is just asking why when things are happening in your life that you don't want. That's, that's proper prayer. The psalmist does this all the time. Lord, why? What, why did you take my husband from me? Why did you take my wife from me? Why haven't you given me a husband or a wife? Why did that teenager die in that car crash? Why did I lose my job? Why don't I have any friends? Why do I study, struggle with same-sex attraction? I can't seem to get over it. Why? That, that's a proper prayer. That's what godly people do. They don't understand God's ways, but instead of just turning from God and giving up on Him, the godly person turns toward God, even when he or she doesn't have really anything other to say, then why? And so that's what we see here in, in, in Rebekah and in Isaac. Here's what we learn about the godly line. They're prayerful people. Friends, here, one, one of the signs that a person is alive is if the person has a pulse. And one of the signs that a person is spiritually alive is that the person prays. No prayer, no pulse. I mean, if you think you're a Christian and you have no prayer life, you think you're a Christian and you never talk to God, you, you better reconsider where you are spiritually. Because Christians pray. Here, here's what J.C. Ryle says, prayer is to faith what breath is to life. How a man can live and not breathe is past my comprehension. And how a man can believe and not pray is past my comprehension also. So the text teaches us this about the godly. Next question though, what does this text teach us about the ungodly? What does the text teach us about the ungodly? So remember, when I looked at that, at that uh, diagram, 
Uh, we have the godly line right through here. Um, I, I'm saying that Isaac and Rebekah are godly, but uh, over here we got Esau. Esau's outside the redemptive line. I'm calling him the ungodly. And so we're going to consider now um, what do we observe about the ungodly as we look at Esau. And so we're going to see that at the end of this text, verses uh, 29 to 34. But, but notice, first of all, you've, you've got already, I mentioned this conflict, there's already these differences, these conflicts developing between Jacob and Esau. In verse 27, for instance, very different personalities. Uh, Esau is like a, you know, a rugged man's man, skillful hunter, man of the field. He's outdoors, you know, he's, um, he, he's slain animals while Jacob is a quiet man dwelling in tents. Jacob is, looks like to be your, your classic introvert. He didn't want to be out in the field. He wants to stay home and cook. And, and that's what we're going to see here. But we see also even uh, some more dissension developing in verse 28, where we learn that Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, and Rebekah loved Jacob. And so we have this favoritism developing among the parents. And um, maybe you've experienced that, feeling like mom and dad love your brother or sister more than you. It's a, um, it's a, it's a reality that can cause a lot of dysfunction in a, in a family, right? So what the writer is doing here is just giving us more clues of conflict between Jacob and Esau, and then the conflict kind of comes to head in, in this story about the birthright, verses 29 to 34. So here's Jacob. He's... he's at home, as introverts tend to be, and he's cooking stew. Esau, he's been out in the field working hard. He comes in, and he is exhausted. And so he says to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. And uh, it says there in the parentheses, therefore, his name shall be called Edom. Uh, actually, the Hebrew word there for red stew is um, Adam, Adam. And so the word Edom is just a, a transliteration of Adam. And Edom is the nation that then comes through Esau. So that's why you have that little parenthetical statement there. But Esau is, is coming in. He's exhausted. He's hungry. And he wants some of the stew that Jacob is making, and Jacob here sees a great opportunity. And, and so it, here's something we're going to see about Jacob, is he is a schemer, he is an opportunist, he is a salesman, he knows how to get what he wants, <laughs> and, and that's, what he, that's what he does here. He, so he, he makes this offer. He, he says, um, all right, verse 31, you want some stew? Sell me your birthright. <laughs> and so... Uh, Esau is kind of put on the spot, but that verse 32 is very, very significant for this point. Um, <clears throat> uh, yeah, verse 32. Esau says, I'm about to die. I mean, if there was ever an overstatement and an exaggeration, that there you go. Oh, I'm about to die. I mean, sometimes you've heard your children say that maybe, you know, they haven't eaten in a couple hours. They're about to die. Yeah, they're just about to expire. Total overstatement here. Um, but then that next phrase, what use is a birthright to me? What, what, what use is this birthright? What, what, what is a birthright? A, a birthright is what would have granted to Esau 
double the inheritance that his brother would have gotten. It also would have guaranteed to Esau that he would have been the head of the family when Isaac died. So there's a lot of monetary, a lot of positional authority and blessing there in the birthright. But more importantly, because of this particular family, what I've been trying to tell you here today about Isaac and and Rebekah being uh, part of the redemptive line, this is a unique birthright because the covenant promises are actually flowing through this birthright. Because they flow flow through this family, this birthright is a special link to God's plan for the redemption of the whole world. And Esau says, I'd rather have a cup of stew. I, I value lentil stew more than I value the redemption of the world through a coming Messiah. Esau here is just driven by a desire for immediate gratification with no long-term sense of how this is going to affect him or anybody else. It's just the classic example of immediate gratification. I'm going to satisfy my stomach before I give any thought to satisfying my soul. And so what the text here is teaching us about the ungodly is that the ungodly tend to have no interest in spiritual things. They disgrace what is sacred. They have no regard for the things that are taught to us in Scripture. They're not thinking about the glory of God. They're not concerned about how their sin is going to be forgiven. They have no interest in avoiding an eternity in hell. They don't care about bringing glory to God. These things are far from their minds. Sometimes we think of the ungodly as the people who are practicing witchcraft and doing these outwardly really wicked things. A sign of the ungodly is just a total absence of spiritual interest. And so Esau here, according to the very last verse in the passage, despised his birthright. Despised it. He held in contempt what was sacred in and, and precious. Some of you might remember way back, it was 1990 actually, it was the beginning of a baseball game uh, in San Diego. The San Diego Padres were playing. And do you remember it was Roseanne Barr who sang the national anthem? I, I know a lot of you are not old enough to remember this, but I mean, you can go to YouTube, of course, and watch it. But Roseanne Barr comes out in the field and just totally intentionally butchers the national anthem just sings it as badly as she could. Horrible voice, made kind of an obscene gesture at the end of the song. And people were just offended. People were shocked. They said, that is, that is disgraceful. That is sacrilegious, the way she treated our national anthem. And that's just a picture of what Esau has done here. It's disgraceful. It's sacrilegious. Holding in contempt what is precious. So what we learn here about the ungodly, no interest, no interest in spiritual things. Friends, if you even have a little bit of an interest in knowing who God is and learning what the scriptures teach and having some assurance that forgiveness of sins is yours, that's a good sign. That's a sign the Spirit is at work in you. But if you're dead to those things, oh friend, I just want to call on you to examine your heart. 
Reflect on that. That's dangerous to be in a place with no spiritual interest, to be a person only seeking to gratify your desires immediately. Think about spiritual things. Esau didn't. And so that's another thing we can learn from the text about the ungodly. And now, uh, one more thing. Yeah, this is uh, Hebrews 12, by the way. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, and that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. So they're the New Testament just affirming the wickedness of Esau's action. Now Jacob is the opportunist, you know, he's not a saint in this picture. I'm not suggesting that, but Esau is, is the one who is called unholy. Uh, here in Hebrews 12. Okay, so last thing here. So what does the text now teach us about God? And more specifically, as you're reading your Bible and you're asking that question, what does this teach us about the grace of God? What does this teach us about the gospel? Okay, lots of G words here. Godly, ungodly, God, gospel, grace. What, What does this teach us about the grace of God in the gospel? Okay, so Remember when Rebecca inquired of the Lord, right? When she went to God and said, why is this happening to me? Why is this conflict going on in my womb? How did God answer her question? Look at verse 23. Here's how God answers the question. He says, two nations are in your womb. That's a reference to Israel, it's coming from Jacob, and Edom coming from Esau. Two nations. And they're going to be divided. That's the conflict. They're going to be battling each other. But then he says, the one shall be stronger than the other. And then that last phrase, the older shall serve the younger. Now, that's a very startling statement. It's hard to get in our current culture. The older shall serve the younger. The reason why that's such an unusual statement is because the younger is always supposed to serve the older. That's the way it would have worked in that culture and in that time. The younger would serve the older. God comes in and says, no, the older is going to serve the younger. And so we see how this plays out. Verse 25, verse 25, Esau comes out all red and hairy. He comes out first. That means Esau is the older. Verse 26, Jacob, he comes out second comes out holding Esau's heel. There you've got uh, Jacob's ambition and his opportunism. Even in the womb, he's trying to get ahead of others, trying to get out of the womb before Esau does. We'll see more of that as we study his life. But his name is called Jacob. So Jacob comes out second, and so that means Jacob is the younger. And so the way this is supposed to work is that Jacob is supposed to serve Esau. But God steps in totally reverses our expectations and says, nope, Esau is going to serve Jacob. Now, why does he say that? Why does he say that? Is it because um, Jacob is the better guy? I assure you that's not the reason. Because as we look at the life of Jacob, you're going to see, like I said, he's a schemer. He is a deceitful guy. What we notice here is that that God is making a choice, and He is not waiting for these two boys to grow up so that God can then observe their performance and choose the better man. That is not what is happening. Before they're even born, God steps in and says, I'm going to reverse this whole thing, I'm going to do it my way, 
and the older is going to serve the younger. In other words, what we learn about God from this passage is He is utterly sovereign, and He does what He wishes. And the choices that He makes are not dependent on our actions and how good we are and how holy we are and how moral we are. In fact, the Apostle Paul takes this very passage in Romans 9 and says this, when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. What Paul is saying is that this passage in Genesis is the foundation for how it is that God goes about choosing who will be saved and who won't. It's support for the doctrine of election. God's choice is entirely wrapped up in His sovereign purposes, but not because of anything that He observes in you or me before they were born. Not yet born, had done nothing, either good or bad. Clearly what Paul is saying here is that the choice is not based on whether Jacob and Esau have done anything good or bad. Only in God's sovereign grace. Now, we're talking the doctrine of election here. Uh, a lot of people don't like this doctrine. This creates some controversy, I, I understand. But, you know, there's so many things that we could say on this particular topic. I, I just want to say this, friends, that you should be very grateful that this is the way it works. I, I know in your heart you have some complaints. Wait, it doesn't seem fair. Why does he choose some and not others? Those are good questions. But you ought to be very grateful that this is the way it works. Because if God chose based on whether we were good or bad, if God shows you or me based on His looking into the future and then choosing based on whether we were good or bad people, He would not choose any of you. And He wouldn't choose me either. There is not one person that God would choose based on foreseen merit. We're not good enough. There's nothing in us that would cause Him to want to choose us. Our only hope is that His choice would be based in utter sovereign grace according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace and what that means friends is that when God looked into the future and saw what you all did and said this last week I mean he saw the way you talked to your kids and your wife and he saw the things that you looked at on your computer and your phone and he, he saw those days that went by and you never even prayed. He saw all that. He looked down through the future and saw all of those things and chose you anyway. That's, that's grace. And he's committed to you. Even though he knew what you were going to do. He gave his son to die for you. He gave his spirit to change your heart, to give you eyes to see, to be brought to yourself and saving faith. This doctrine is not meant to discourage us or to frustrate us. It's meant to bring comfort. I know what you might be thinking is, yeah, but how do I know that I'm chosen? How do I know that God elected me? How do I know that God predestined me? That's actually one of the easiest questions to answer. Here's how you know. Do you believe in Jesus? Have you turned from your sin and you're trusting in Him? 
Your hope is not in your good works, but in what Jesus has done for you. You believe that His blood shed on the cross is sufficient to wipe away your sins? Do you believe that? Then you're chosen. It's, it's, it's really not any more complicated than that. If you trust in Jesus, you have the assurance that you are chosen. People don't believe unless they're chosen. And we even see this here in uh, 1 Thessalonians. For we know, brothers loved by God, that He has chosen you. Why? Because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and the Holy Spirit with full conviction. Our gospel came to you and you believed, you became Christians. That's how we know that He's chosen you. That's what this passage is saying. Don't try to figure out who God has chosen and who, who He has. That's not your business. He's told us that. That's not your job. Your job is to repent and believe in Jesus and be saved. So, a lot to be learned here from the birth of Jacob. Those three questions apply to any text. Hopefully, it'll be helpful. Um, we have a long way to go, a lot to learn uh, as we continue to study this passage and as we get ready to come to the table. Father, thank you so much for your word. We thank you for um, instructing us. We thank you, Father, for your grace in choosing us. Although we don't deserve to be chosen, we thank you in your grace you do so anyway. Um, help us to be a prayerful people. Give us a new and profound interest in spiritual things and make us more like your son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.